Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brame. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a self-help resource for people with herpes. And as I took that breath, I realized that my alarm was going to go off in a few minutes and it would have disrupted the recording, but I caught it because I'm so intuitive. Uh, but anyway, it's 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as self-help for people with herpes, as well as provides professional licensed mental health care uh, for anyone who's struggling with their diagnosis um, on a donation basis. And the podcast has been running since 2017, and uh, we've had weekly interviews with people either living with herpes or people in the field of uh, sexual health care, sex education, mental health, um, and public health professionals just to get an overall understanding of herpes stigma. And so today, um, I have Jacqueline here from the Instagram account, The Lost Labia Chronicles, uh, who's also wearing a Naruto shirt. Um is that that's yours right are you you a fan yeah. all right all right i gotta ask <laughs> yeah all right uh, i am always dressed in anime gear <laughs> oh, i love it i love it i love it so much i got excited because i saw it i saw the headband i was like leaf village oh oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in case you were looking like uh he is not looking at my face that's what i was looking at <laughs> so um Speaking of the the like herpes stigma, people navigating herpes stigma, uh, you and I connected over Instagram. I want to give you the chance to first introduce yourself, but I want to before forgetting, make sure to um, get you to share how prevalent herpes stigma shows up in your line of work. So throwing that out there as the question, I would like for you to provide your introduction, who you are, what you do, and then we'll lead into that, um, how your work is, or how herpes stigma shows up in your work. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. Uh, long-time listener, so it's very exciting for me to uh, have the honor of being here today with you. Um, so, yes, my name is Jacqueline, and I'm the founder of the Lost Labia Chronicles, which started out as a blog about my journey with vulvar lichen sclerosis, and then it basically morphed into this content hub for evidence-based education and support. So now I do support with one-on-one -on -one calls. I create a lot of educational content. I'm also on the board for Lichen Sclerosis Support Network. I create content for them as well. They are also a 501c3 nonprofit in the United States. And they run support groups and education webinars and stuff like that. So um, I was diagnosed with lichen sclerosis when I was 31 years old after trying to get a diagnosis for 10 years. And, uh, and, and I think there's some interesting parts even in that diagnosis journey because with vulvar lichen sclerosis, a lot of the symptoms are vulvar itch and vulvar pain. So what's interesting is that a lot of these genital health conditions overlap insofar as symptoms, right? A lot of us will have pain, a lot of us will have soreness, and this could be a number of things. And I didn't, I'm in Canada. Our sex education is not not very great. Same you know? here. Kind of, yeah, I figured, right? It's, I mean, I'm looking for a country where it is great, um, yet to find it. But, you know, a lot of the times it's focused on abstinence, pregnancy, use condoms, and STIs. So I grew up thinking that if my genitals hurt, 
I either had a yeast infection or an STI. I didn't know that there was a whole host of conditions out there. So early in my diagnosis journey, I was actually frequenting STI clinics, begging them, test me, test me again, test me again. There is something wrong with me because at the age of 20 years old, sex was excruciating and my vulva would tear open. Like, I mean, just if there was any kind of insertion, even just a tampon, my vulva would tear. So I constantly had lesions that were incredibly painful. And so my mind was like, well, this has to be an STI. Like, you guys are missing something. Test me again. Test me again. And, you know, everything would always come back negative. Um, a lot of doctors just told me, oh, your partners are probably too big. And I was like, I don't, I don't think so. Um, but, okay. Also got the typical, you're just stressed do yoga. Do yoga always made me laugh because I would literally go to these appointments with my yoga like bag, my yoga mat literally propped against the wall and they're like, you just need to calm down and zen out and do some yoga. And I'm like, are these, these are professional healthcare uh, workers who are suggesting yoga, your partner's too big. Are they even asking you about sex at all? No, no. So I would come in and I would say, well, first of all, I wasn't using the proper anatomical terms initially. So because, again, lack of, lack of awareness, lack of education, I used vagina as a catch-all for everything down there. So I would come in saying my vagina hurts. It hurts when I have sex. They wouldn't go deeper into the sexual pain conversation. They left it there. They really, in my experience, a lot of healthcare providers really do not like asking about sex and sexual health. They want to talk about it and engage the least amount possible. So they never kind of dove into that. Frequently, they wouldn't even look at me. Um, and when they did, they were just like, yeah, you're just a really small person. Um, partners are probably too big. And again, I just, but, but at such a young age, I, I, you know, my critical thinking skills weren't what they were now. And I just kind of accepted what they were saying even though at the back of my head, something was always nagging me, like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right to me. Um, so just kept, kept searching on and off, trying to get diagnoses. And this was getting progressively worse until I was 31 years old. And there's this clinic in downtown Toronto, which is where I live, called Hassle-Free Clinic. And it's supposed to be uh, LGBTQ plus, like, safe STI kind of genital health clinic. So I thought, let's try there. Maybe, maybe I'll get something from this place that really seems to specialize in this versus, because I was, you know, I did my master's and my PhD, so I moved around a lot. Uh, so I was never seeing a consistent doctor. So when I found this clinic, I thought, let's give it a shot. And so I went in thinking, like I went in like before they opened, because it's first come first serve. I was like there at 7.30, they opened at nine. I had a coffee. I was like just waiting anxiously to get in first person they saw and she examined me heard my history and told me there's nothing I can do for you there's nothing wrong you might have multiple sclerosis but I can't help you and that threw me through a spin because my mother who passed away when I was 20 actually had multiple sclerosis which can lead to sexual dysfunction so that kind of freaked me out but also I kind of gave up at that point because this place seemed like a place where I thought I was actually going to get support and some answers. And they, she literally said, there is nothing I can do for you. 
So I left feeling super dejected, thinking, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, I know something's wrong. I can walk down the street and my vulva rips open. That's not, that, that can't be stress. I know that stress can exacerbate symptoms. Absolutely. But stress doesn't cause parts of your body to literally tear open from like a light breeze. That just, but I left it. And then I went to see my family doctor a couple weeks later, something completely not related to my vulva, probably my back. And, but I mentioned my vulvar symptoms really quickly to her, kind of off the cuff. And she goes, whoa, 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 hold up. Can you, can you talk about your vulva for a second? And I said, mm, yeah, sure. And so I started describing my symptoms and how difficult sex had been for me. And she said, well, I know that you've had 20 dozen doctors tell you nothing's wrong, but as your family doctor, I would like to examine you. I would like to be the one to say there's nothing wrong. So I, she said, do you mind if I look at your vulva? I said, absolutely. I don't, what's one more doctor at this point? Everyone's seen my vulva. Like, I don't care. So I go in the other room, you know, take my pants off, get in the stirrups, get ready. She opens the door and she doesn't even take a second. She goes, oh, you have lichen sclerosis. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And she goes, so then she starts doing the clinical examination. She gets a little closer and she starts examining the vulva and she goes, yeah, you definitely have lichen sclerosis, which for listeners that aren't super familiar with this, it is an autoimmune condition that affects the genitals. It can cause signs, uh, it can cause symptoms such as itch. And when I mean itch, it is nothing like you've ever experienced. It is no yeast infection. When we talk in the support groups, there are people that develop insomnia. They wake up in their underwear, they're full of holes in blood because they've been scratching so aggressively because the itch is so deep, so profound. Um, lesions, tears, splitting open, ulcers. And then you also have clinical signs, which I didn't know because I wasn't looking at my vulva. But my vulva, which is normally would have been a pink color, completely white, white. And I had lost the majority of my anatomy. So I no longer have inner lips. So the labia minora, which are the inner lips, I don't have those. Those have completely disappeared on me. They basically resorbed into the labia majora. And this is why I actually call my blog, my content, the Lost Labia Chronicles, because I lost my labia to the condition and I was blogging. So it was like the chronicles of my lost labia. So that's actually why I call it that because I lost my labia minora to the condition, to lichen sclerosis. And this can happen. You can lose parts of your vulva. Another thing that happened to me was that my clitoris, so the external part of the clitoris has two parts, the hood and the glands. And the hood had completely scarred over the glands. So I can't retract the clitoris and you can't expose the glands, which also means in a lot of cases you lose clitoral sensation. So that's yet another aspect of the sexual health piece of lichen sclerosis because a lot of us can't orgasm because there's no more sensation. So clitoris completely scarred over, lost labia, completely white, full of fissures and tears, and she had no question in her head. She was like, this is lichen sclerosis. And I basically dissociated in the office, especially because she said it's autoimmune, there's no cure, you treat it for life, and you're at an increased risk for vulvar cancer. When she said that, 
I just dissociated. Out of body experience, I don't remember what anything else that she told me. And the first few, you know, six months were absolute hell. And I think this is true for anybody that gets a genital diagnosis, period. Regardless of how symptomatic you are, because you're processing not just pain and symptoms, but you're processing stigma, you're processing shame, you're processing what does this mean for my future? Like, can I date again? Can I have sex? What does this mean? How do I talk to people? All things that you talk about all the time on the podcast, right? So I'm processing all of this, processing grief at losing body parts. Um, And it was really, really challenging for me. And then eventually I got my case into remission, started the Lost Labia Chronicles. And then, you know, kind of like your trajectory, right? We go through this internal hell um, and then we educate ourselves and then we become educators almost. So once I got myself to a place of acceptance, where my Alice was in remission and I mentally was accepting everything, that's when I started doing kind of education work and outreach work and advocacy work. And so part of that is running support groups. I do one-on-one individual support calls and then I also co-host bi-weekly support groups. And one thing that you know we were chatting about earlier was that in these support groups, a lot of people come in and they say, I was misdiagnosed with herpes. But the way that they say that, it's not just, oh, I was misdiagnosed as herpes. It was actually latent sclerosis. There is shame in that. They are like, oh, my God, the audacity. There's no way I could have herpes. I've only had X amount of partners, or I only have one partner. There's no way. How could they think I, somebody like me, could have herpes? And I'm always quick to say, well, hold on a second. Let's, let's take pause here because there's a lot to unpack in that statement because there is the misdiagnosis piece that absolutely needs to be addressed. But there is also this shame and this stigma around herpes. And then the other thing that we see often, too, is people feel a huge sense of relief when they hear that it's not herpes. They're like, oh, thank God. It's an autoimmune condition. I have it for life, but thank God it's not herpes. I don't want to have that. And to me, that just kind of opens this whole can of worms with respect to just genital health stigma and STI stigma. And it's always really interesting because a lot of us in the LS space are very, very big on let's destigmatize vulvar health. Let's destigmatize the genitals. But that only works in the lichen sclerosis kind of angle. So there's a lot of shame, I think, and a lot of miseducation, too, about lichen sclerosis that kind of pops up. Wow. Thank you for all of that. You, you see, I pop messages in the chat real quick because I didn't want to lose the yeah. questions that I had. Uh, but I had gone to the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health Conference in St. Louis mm-hmm. in March 2023. And one of the things that they talked about was a lot of what you're saying. Like you're giving me a real experience of what these medical professionals were speaking to when it comes to women's health and women's sexual health. Now, just because we think genitals because there's something happening with the genitals just like you said you were going to see people regarding sexual health and Mm -hmm. our sex education does not teach us that 
there are things that can happen with our anatomy that aren't sexually related. You know, a bone can be broken in my arm and if I don't tell you there was impact to it, you may not think anything of it. Like, oh, let's put it in the sling. Maybe after a little bit more of an examination, like your doctor, your family doctor was able to look and go, oh, because of this, this, and this, here's where we are. If they were to look at my elbow that I wasn't impacted by, they may see that there's some deterioration and there's something else happening. And we don't have to link broken bone with impact right so using this as an example when we look at our genital health it could be the same thing okay no scis but there's clearly something happening here what could it be um one question that i have is uh at this conference what they spoke about was um a procedure specifically that allows for you to retract the clitoral hood exposing the clitoris and you mentioned that there was so much scarring there was the scarring from the clitoral hood so you would lose sensation in the clitoral hood or was the scarring on the clitoris so even the separation will have that scarring and loss of sensation in the clitoris Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, so the scarring is the hood. So basically the hood will kind of thicken and get sticky and tacky and stick to and cover the glands. So the way that I explain it is, imagine with your bare hands, you pick up a cup. That tactile feedback from your bare hand to the cup is pretty strong. You can feel it. Now put that cup down and put on a thick pair of gloves, like a big like snowboarding glove or something like that, and then you pick it up. You can still kind of feel that there's a cup in your hand, but it's kind of reduced. You're not getting the same kind of sensation as you would when you're just feeling it with your bare hand. So that scarring of the hood over the glands, it's kind of covering over that gland, which has thousands and thousands of nerves that are very, very sensitive. So when you're covering it like that, it's almost like you're putting a glove over that sensitive clitoral gland and that reduces sensation and in some folks completely eliminate sensation so the procedure that you're talking about there's a couple there's a surgical lysis of adhesions and then there is a non-surgical lysis of adhesions and then you can also do something called clitoral myofascial release which is a technique that um, you can learn in pelvic floor physical therapy these are all techniques to help break up that scarring and those adhesions so that you can start to retract that clitoris again. And when you can retract the clitoris, now you've exposed the glands and there's no more scarring. So now you can get that sensation back. So you absolutely can. And I've, I didn't get the procedure because I'm in Canada and they don't really offer it up here, but I did use, yeah, I know, I used a variety of techniques um, building on kind of clitoral myofascial release principles and I actually did manage to completely unfuse my clitoris anyways. My labia are gone. Yes, I know. My labia is gone for life. That's okay. I've made my peace. I love my teeny tiny little vulva as she is. I am okay with it. But it was great to kind of be able to break up that scarring and retract the clitoris, not only from a sensation perspective, but also because what can happen is it's important for us to be able to retract the clitoris. Again, things were not taught in sex education. Um, Dr. Rachel Rubin, she's a, a urologist. She's, she's the big one that might have even given that talk. Um, 
It, it was. It was. So this is reminding me of a personal story. Um, I was having sex with someone. I happened to have the lights on. And with this partner, uh, there's a lot going on. She mentioned that she's on uh, depression uh, medication, uh, antidepressants. I I don't know why I said depression medication. Like, yeah, she wants to be depressed. I didn't even catch that. My head was like a typo. You know when you just read somebody's typo properly? I didn't even hear that. Yeah, and I remember... uh, she said that she didn't have much sensation in her clitoris. It takes her a really long time to get off and it takes a lot of intensity. So I immediately thought, oh, okay, watching how uh, she was when we were having sex, she wouldn't retract her clitoral hood. So going down on her, I like retracted it myself. And I, I noticed that it was it was slow. It was like slow to retract. She didn't mention any pain, but I imagine now knowing what I just heard from you that maybe there was a loss of sensation in general. And like the white spots that you speak of, I think I saw a couple of those and I was like, uh, I don't know if I can lick this. And that was kind of like, it was just kind of like a smooth transition into like more of a conversation after we finish having sex, but just about, Hey, I noticed these things and she was crediting it to antidepressants. Um, and not even just like, you know, retracting the hood of her clitoris and how many people don't know that or how often, like for me, I'm, in this space of sex education and sexual health so i knew that this is something that probably should get brought up and despite what she may have accredited loss of sensation and numbness to there's that like i i don't yeah like i i it 
it's very interesting that this non-sexual normal thing is something that because it's so interconnected with sex is just not taught and that's not what people understand that's something that people don't understand about sex education and why it's so important because when people who don't agree with um better sex education i think those are the people who look at it as intercourse education nobody is teaching people how to have sex how to have intercourse the teachings behind it are much more expansive than that it's giving you the tools you need in order to communicate and get to a point of being sexual with partners and making so making it happen in a way that you get more of the desired outcomes which might include not getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant which might include family planning and getting someone pregnant or becoming pregnant right and so so much of what you're speaking to here is critical to sex education just off of this story because there's a number of different infections like you said that can affect our genital health that have nothing to do with sex but would only be fitting in sex education mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like so many people could have earlier diagnoses and in the world of life and sclerosis an early diagnosis is very important because when it does go untreated for a lengthy period of time it can progress into vulvar cancer so getting people diagnosed as early as early as possible is so fundamental. And what's funny is that sometimes people that push against sex education in schools are the ones who end up with these conditions and then are then so angry that no one taught them about their genitals. And I think that speaks to what you just said about sex sex education is about so much more than intercourse. There are so many other components. It's learning your anatomy, learning how to advocate for yourself, teaching people about the core, like consent, just having conversations about consent. You know, we're not taught that. Yeah. You come up against that way later in life, maybe if you're in the ethical non-monogamy communities, you might hear about that earlier, but a lot of people, like that doesn't get brought up. Um, what can happen to our genitals, sexually related and not, you know, these are all things we should be knowing. Like no one teaches you about menopause, they don't talk about periods. So so many things that we miss and it can greatly impact our health on so many levels. So yes. it's just Yeah. You brought up a really good point too about uh how the non monogamy and kink communities uh how they communicate because their negotiations in those spaces tend to not really have much to do with intercourse, if at all. And a lot of that is consent. It is negotiating boundaries. It's negotiating Mm -hmm. uh, the rules of play. And I'll often compare that to recess. You know, what do you do if someone violates a boundary? Where do you go for support? Or where do you go for that person to be held accountable? Kink and BDSM communities have an amazing framework for Mm -hmm. dealing with these things that have nothing to do with sex that arguably relate to recess for uh, youth on a playground when you're negotiating let's say tag okay we're going to play tag if you're it here are the rules uh okay i have a boundary don't hit me in the face don't touch my butt and don't push me don't hit me too hard right these are things that are in place and if any of these boundaries are violated then okay game's over and i'm gonna go do something else 
It's as simple as that. And people want to not have uh, that association between youth and sex, but it's so much more about the communication from that world being applied early on as it fits the context of uh, where the human is at that time. So in youth, we need to teach people what abusive behavior is and how it looks in youth and what to do about it, how to avoid it, how to identify healthy and unhealthy behaviors, and then be able to move forward um, in a way that um, that that's agreed upon by everybody else. Let's just mm-hmm. say that. Um, and then you mentioned you responded to my question that I wrote in the chat about catching it early and then treating it. Had you been diagnosed or had you seen this particular doctor at age 20, 21, could that have changed anything for you or did it progressively just get worse or did you more so just get used to it and just decide, okay, this is the rest of my life? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. So LS is a progressive condition. So the longer that it goes untreated, the more it's going to progress. And that can progress in terms of symptoms worsening. And it absolutely did for me. So I noticed that when I was a teen, that sex was uncomfortable. Like, I wouldn't use the word pain yet. I would have said it just felt kind of uncomfy, you know. But again, I'm not like cringing. I'm not clenching my jaw. And then it moved into pain, and as the years kind of moved on, that pain went from like a level three to a level six to a level 10, where I was like, I don't think I'll ever have sex again in any capacity, be it oral, be it self-pleasure, be it, you know, anything, at least non-genital sex, actually, because I don't subscribe to sex being purely genital. So, um, but I thought genitals, like, that's a no for me in any capacity. Um, And the other thing is that, so A, I could have stopped that earlier, got into remission and maybe not lived for 10 years um, in agony every time I tried to have sex. But also all of those changes that occurred, the loss of my labia, I could still have those. I could have never experienced the clitoral scarring. So all of those changes that occurred to my vulva, that could have been prevented. And that's why we really advocate for early diagnosis is one, the vulvar cancer point, but also to prevent scarring to prevent changes to people's vulva because that can be a lot for folks to process like because again you know such as education no one tells you that you can lose parts of your anatomy and by the way for folks listening in um lichen sclerosis can affect anybody all ages all genders so people with penises get lichen sclerosis too um so again something that just needs to be talking more about because for people with penises, they can also get scarring. The foreskin can scar to the glands, um, and then they can't retract. So when they get erect, it gets extremely, extremely painful. Sex becomes, like for people with vulvas, it becomes excruciating for them too. Um, and so again, it's just kind of like if these things were caught early, we wouldn't have these scarring, and then we wouldn't have a lot of the pain and stuff that, that's going on. So. Yeah, I think it could have been quite different for me had it been caught when I was in my 20s. It also would have meant very different things for my relationships as I tried to navigate, you know, because there's the question of, you know, there's the disclosure conversation. There's how do we talk to partners about our genitals and what's going on. 
And that's already a challenge, right? But add to this that I don't have a name for what's going on. So it's one thing for me to say, I have HSC2, da da da, this is how it impacts me, this is how it can impact you, risks, you know, we have that discussion, or I have lichen sclerosis, it's an autoimmune condition. But for me, it was like, I don't know what's going on. So people would blame me in relationships. They would say, oh, you just don't want to have sex with me, you're just not attracted to me, um, and stuff like that. And that was really hard because it was like, I, I am, but I don't know what to tell you, and I don't know what's wrong, and that's not helping when the doctors say there's nothing wrong, because they're kind of just validating the narrative of, I should just work, my vulva should just work. Um, so I lost a lot of relationships because of, you know, that. So again, that's just another thing that could have changed if I got that diagnosis earlier, it would have probably impacted, you know, my, my relationships and how I kind of spoke about that. My sexual health in my early 20s would have been very, very different, I think. Yeah, and <clears throat> even with that, that's something that doesn't affect your sexual health, that affects your relationships, right? It's not a sexual mm -hmm. health thing necessarily uh, because there's no diagnosis, there's no uh, transmission, and that's what we go to when we think about sexual health, STIs, and if there's discomfort with sex. It's like, oh, am I going to get something? Oh, if I'm not going to get anything, then what's the issue? What's the problem? Why don't you right. want to have sex with me? And that's very difficult to navigate um, especially without having the communication because now it's not a matter of screening for people um, who are tolerant which I think a lot mm -hmm. of people with HSV do is okay when I disclose yeah. I just need somebody to be okay with the possibility of getting it now we're talking about getting into a relationships where you have to be with someone who's going to be comfortable with the fact that you might not always if at all even be able to have sex so have you been able to have sex does it just have to look a certain way mm, so that's yeah <laughs> so when i got diagnosed at 31 i mentally kind of resigned and said never having genital sex again in my life which was very sad for me because I'm not an asexual person, and there's nothing wrong with asexuality, but for me, I am a sexual person, and I did want that aspect in my life. And so to feel like at 31, that was completely taken away as an option, that was, that was really difficult to process. But then fast forward to, you know, about a year or so later, um, my lichen sclerosis is in remission, and I did a lot of work on my sexual health, and we can take a deeper dive into that, but I am now 100% able to have penetrative sex, oral sex, toys, everything is okay. It doesn't hurt, I don't care, it's pleasurable. Now that my clitoris is unfused, I feel even more. So it's great, and I would actually say that now, my sexual health is better than it's ever been in my entire life. Um, not only because the pain is gone, not only because I can feel more, but because I'm so much more aware of my body. I have learned so much about vulvar health and sexual health that I now just have such a better relationship to sex and to sexuality, to my own sexuality. And that's something that may not have happened if I didn't get this diagnosis because I might have just continued with my head in the sand yeah. for you know my whole life. So this diagnosis really actually opened my eyes in a way that I am now grateful for. Now, I wouldn't have said that at 31. Um, I wouldn't have said that my heart is filled with gratitude for this. Yeah. But 
now I am. And, and yeah, I am able to have sex now. And many people can still have sex. It's just we have to kind of go back to square one, mm-hmm. basically, and start thinking about what does sex mean to me? What does intimacy mean for me? You know, and, you know, some of the things I did was I got a sex therapist right away. First thing I did, I was like, Google, sex therapist near me. Found a bunch of them online, vetted them, found a good fit for me, worked with her. I did pelvic floor physical therapy. I had to work with dilators, which kind of look like dildos, I guess. They're kind of these phallic, um, you know, devices, and they go and graded. So small ones to large. Small ones usually the size of a pinky, and then the biggest one is usually something that might resemble a penis-sized object. So there are ways that we can kind of, there's, there's so many ways that we can work on sexual health with lichen sclerosis from the physical side and the mental side. Um, but when we use those tools and we start educating ourselves about, you know, sex and sexual health, we can start getting ourselves back to a place where sex can be back on the table. So there is definitely hope for people that, you know, think that a lot of people come to me, some people come to me at 16 years old and they just got diagnosed and they're like, so I never get to date and I never get to have sex again. So I'm 16 and I'm just alone forever. And I'm like, no, no, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. And I'm like, let's have a conversation. Let's have multiple conversations. This is not a one time kind of, kind of deal. But again, just what you were saying before, like communication really is the heart of sex education. And I think that's what it all boils down to. Um, And that is, it's such an important piece when we think about, you know, sex, sexual health and sexuality. Yeah. And what about pregnancy? So we're talking about um, the pain being what it is and scarring, losing your labia. Uh, it, what I'm envisioning is in an extreme case, like the vulva opening just closing and this mm-hmm. making it almost impossible, I would say, for a vaginal delivery. So is that is that something? Is that a thing? Definitely, that is a concern for a lot of people, Um, people that haven't had children yet that want to have children, that's usually an immediate concern, Um, you know, is I will never get to have children, and again, nope, people with lichen sclerosis can absolutely give birth, Um, and often they can give birth with a spontaneous vaginal birth, Um, however, we just need more care throughout the pregnancy, more education. Um, they might need to go see a pelvic floor or physical therapist more during that last trimester. Um, there's something called like a perineal massage, which is something that most people do anyways, I believe. I, I'm childless by choice, um, so I don't know from personal experience, but from friends that, that have been pregnant, they tell me they do something called perineal massage, which is to kind of just get that perineal area more flexible, more extensible, so that when the baby is ready to come out, that area can stretch better. So there's techniques, there's scar tissue mobilization that these pelvic floor physical therapists can do to kind of like prep the body to make it less likely. And I mean, we know that folks that deliver vaginally can tear already, right? So that's often a very common thing that can happen. With lichen sclerosis, obviously the thought of tearing can increase more, but ideally what you're doing is you're treating patients with topical corticosteroids, getting them into remission so that, again, complications are less likely. And of course, people always have the option to deliver via cesarean. That is totally a conversation between the patient, the provider, the midwife, the doula, whoever is on that birthing team. 
that's a conversation that they can have and you can absolutely opt for cesarean, especially some people do that when the cases are really severe and they're not in remission yet, or some people don't like to treat with steroids while pregnant. So they choose to go off of their medication, which means that during that nine months, their LS can progress. So they might need to get have a cesarean if, you know, it's just looking like, yeah, this is going to be too complicated vaginally, but you can still have children. You can still get pregnant. And I know so many people this year alone that had vaginal births with like sclerosis. So yeah, that's, that's really nice because I know that that's a really big concern for a lot of people. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, and as far as support goes, uh, I know that for people with herpes, that it's not often about the physical symptoms of herpes it's the stigma it's the uh their self-beliefs it's what they think other people are going to think about them it's those things more so than the physical symptoms and what i'm hearing with like it sclerosis did i say that right you said that all right Uh, (laughs) being something that isn't contagious on one hand you know, there's no fear of passing this on to a partner. But what I see is, particularly with women, is that there's this willingness to endure pain for the sake mm-hmm. of their partner's pleasure. So I'm wondering if you see any of or a lot of that where they're just like, I'll just put up with it or I'll just give oral like this um almost like a, a complete just suppression of their own ability to receive pleasure and like an overcompensation on the giving of pleasure to a partner sort of to overcompensate or make up for their inability to give them what they think they should be able to give them in terms of just like vaginal sex Mm -hmm. that is so painfully common That is so common. I would say that is true for probably 90% of people in the Ellis community, myself included. Like the first 10 years, I was kind of grinning and bearing it. You know what I mean? I would go in my head and I would be so disconnected. I would just be like, I would sometimes pray. I'd be like, think of your biggest fantasy. I don't care. Just like, just hurry up and, and, and finish because I need this over with. Like, I don't know how much longer I can take this. Every bone in my body is like, please stop, please stop, please stop. But I never vocalized it because for me, again, this just comes down to societal narratives and lack of sex education. But for the longest time, and I don't think this anymore, as someone that identifies as a woman, I was like, if this is my duty, like I am their partner, I need to provide them with this. And if I don't, they're going to leave me or they're going to find it elsewhere. And I hear people say this all the time. They're like, my partners are going to leave me. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to get cheated on if I don't give this to them. Like we get people sometimes in the support group that come on in tears saying, my husband is about to divorce me because I can't have sex. So I'm just putting myself night after night through excruciating pain just to kind of keep my relationship. Um, And this is just, it's unfortunately such a common thing or like, yeah, I'll give you oral, not centering their own pleasure and not centering their own, you know, emotions, their own feelings, really just centering the other person um, and kind of avoiding and eliminating themselves in the process. And again, that is something that I did earlier in my relationships when I was much young, you know, it's 
young 20 year old trying to navigate this you really care for the person you don't want them to leave you and there's also part of you that's like why doesn't my body just work like everybody else's like just 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 do the thing like why are you fighting me I want this like it's such a weird disconnect between you feeling aroused mentally and physically and wanting it and then your body just being like absolutely not absolutely not so yeah a lot of people just kind of grin and bear it and and push through and people do this for years and years and years because it's just it's so normalized and people don't have these types of conversations with their friends and that's another thing is that um there's such a, a secret life kind of phenomenon that comes into play, I think, with any kind of genital condition, right? And so it's almost like we just don't talk about it, we don't tell other people, and we just kind of live this isolated private life. And it's very, very isolating, you know, feeling so profoundly alone. Um, but that's what so many people live like all the time, just living the secret life. And that's definitely how I was until I got my diagnosis, and now I'm loud AF. Now I'm the opposite of a secret life. I remember there was a podcast episode where you said, like, if, if you were to Google my name, like, herpes will come up. It'll be like, Courtney, herpes. And I was like, yeah. And for me, it's going to be like, Jacqueline, no labia, her vulva. Like, it's just, you know, I'm so loud about it now, and I'm the complete opposite. But again, at 20 years old, navigating that, it's just, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I was going to ask you, what does support look like from a partner? Because I know for me, for example, just to give you a parallel, <clears throat> and this may be <clears throat> this may be true for you as well, um, often being out there, people who are having similar symptoms or maybe similar experiences may be more vulnerable with you than a, their own therapist or someone, their partner, someone that they trust because we're more low risk but we're also out there with our experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So my question to you would be, other than us listening to them, because I imagine that that's what you do, you listen, you offer a space of acceptance, and you're able to ask questions that a therapist may not know to ask, right? <clears throat> so how can someone like a partner or a friend who is told, hey, I'm dealing with this thing, it's affecting me, uh, and I use that blank statement because it works for lichen sclerosis and for Absolutely. herpes and for other things that might really be impacting someone's uh, mental as well as their behaviors as well, especially in relationships. So um, what does it look like to be a supportive person, friend, partner uh, to someone with lichen sclerosis? Mm. I think obviously, um, I mean, compassion first and foremost, compassion and empathy, right? Understand that this person is coming to you in pain. They're hurting, whether it's mentally or physically. So even though they might not have symptoms, they're hurting. They're living this secret life. They are choosing you. They chose you. You made them feel safe enough that they feel like maybe they can be vulnerable with you acknowledge that and you know make them feel safe tell them it's okay yes thank you for telling me thank you like that must have been a really hard thing for you to say first and foremost because there's so much stigma around genital health and like i'm honored that you feel safe enough to to share this with me 
I think another thing that people can do is take it on themselves to educate themselves and learn about it. It shouldn't always be on the person with the condition to do all the educating. Um, and I always think it's so beautiful when I get messages in my DMs or I get emails saying like, hey, my girlfriend just got diagnosed with lichen sclerosis and I don't know what to do or how to support her. I don't really understand what this is. Can we chat about this? Can you point me to some resources that explain what the condition is, what I need to know, you know, and all of these things. And I always get kind of like teary-eyed when they do that because I'm like, this is what everybody should do, right? Like ideally, regardless of the condition, it's just like, what is this? Let me learn more. Let me educate myself. You know, the burden is often on the people that have the condition to do the educating. And it's like, they're hurting enough. Let's take some of that away and like educate themselves. I have a free ebook that is like lichen sclerosis fundamentals. It's over 60 pages of evidence-based information, support resources. I offer this for free. It will always be free because I I want everybody to at least access that fundamental information. So if somebody just gets, you know, diagnosed and a partner has lichen sclerosis, it's like download the book, read the book, learn about the condition. What is it? How are the symptoms? How could this impact their mental health? How can this impact their sexual health? How do they need to treat? Because maybe they can help with treatment. Maybe they can help because we're supposed to take pictures of our vulvas too. And sometimes that's difficult. So maybe you can take pictures because we're not all acrobats and super flexible and able to yeah, MacGyver everything, right? Like, you know, exactly. It's not always, and then you finally get it and you're like, okay, I got it. And then you look at your phone and it's completely blurry because your like hand is shaking or whatever. So it's like, maybe your partner can take pictures. Maybe your partner can assist in vulva checks, you know, and then have these conversations and it's an ongoing conversation. I always tell that when people reach out to me, I say, this is not a one conversation one and done this is a conversation for as long as you are in that person's life it's continual check-ins because things are going to change physically and mentally things are going to change um and i actually do borrow a lot because i think that there's so much in the kink and ethical non-monogamy you know philosophy you know i often talk about the stoplights you know red yellow green you don't have to be practicing kink to use that right so I often tell people to kind of borrow that idea. If you're having sex with your partner and it starts to feel like maybe you're going to tear, say yellow. We're going to pause. It's not a full stop stop, but we're going to do a little check-in and maybe just shift position. Maybe that position is just compromising the perineum and we just need to change it up a little bit um, and check in during sex, check in after. All of these things, you know, it's, it's something that we do for life. And I think that's the most beautiful way to be intimate with someone and to show up for someone is to have these conversations, is to check in, is to play an active role in their condition. How can I support you? Do you need me to do the pictures for you? Do you need me to check your vulva for you? Do you want me to put the steroid on for you? Um, during sex, like all of these things. So I always love when people take initiative and they're like, how can I support my person? How can I support my friend? And if it's a friend, there's maybe not that sexual element or a different kind of thing, but maybe offer to go to doctor's appointments with them, right? Because a lot of people experience so much medical trauma by the time that they get their diagnosis, that there's so much like PTSD and built up, you know, fear and all of this. And so maybe say, you know, can I bring you to your appointment? Um, or bring them a meal afterwards, 
you know, if they, if you know that they have an appointment in the morning, come over for dinner, bring them their favorite meal, watch your favorite show. That would be Naruto for me, for anyone that wants to ever bring me something. Mac and cheese and Naruto, we're good. Um, but, you know, and, and the other thing is that, like, support is so unique to the individual. So I find it's really just being vulnerable and really saying, what do you need from me? How can I support you in this right now? Because watching Naruto and bringing mac and cheese is not going to work for everybody, right? That might work for me, but that might not work for someone else. Not everybody wants to have somebody go to their appointments with them. So it's always about whether you're a friend, a partner, a caregiver, it's always about checking in. What do you need support-wise right now? And know that what they need as support can change throughout their life. I think that's the other reason I always emphasize check-ins and the fact that it's not a one-and-done conversation because what I need right now might not be what I need in a year. So always checking in with people. What does support look like for you? And, and what are you needing? What you know do you need for you to feel safe right now? What can I do to kind of support you in that? So that's often what I give as advice for people kind of, you know, looking to support people in their lives with, with really any genital condition, to be honest. But I'm obviously more like sclerosis because that's the work I do. But yeah. This has been incredible. Um, I am interviewing healthcare providers right now, and I'm going into what would be my fifth interview. And some of what you're saying is very consistent with uh, some of what I've found to be true with the healthcare providers. Uh, specifically, what I think of is your experience with not being able to get a diagnosis right away um, because the healthcare providers don't have their own referral networks for certain things. Um, mm. An example is, you know, you don't want to go in for genital symptoms to an emergency room where the nurse has been seeing gunshot victims for the entirety of their career because then the way you get that diagnosis is going to be skewed by their experiences. So uh, my question for you is if someone thinks that they're having these symptoms or if they can't really figure things out, what's a good starting point? What type of healthcare provider should they see if they're finding out, okay, no SCIs, but something's wrong with my vulva? Because I would think go see right. a gynecologist or a urologist, right? But Yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky, right? Because like in sclerosis anyway, it's kind of the intersection of Hold on gynecology one second. and dermatology. One, one second. I, I froze, you froze for just a second. Can you repeat that? Okay. Yep, absolutely. So it's an interesting question because lichen sclerosis kind of sits at the intersection of gynecology and dermatology. So gynecology because it's genitals, dermatology because lichen sclerosis is a skin condition, so vulvar dermatosis. So at its heart, at its core, it's actually a skin condition. So oftentimes we'll recommend seeking out a board certified dermatologist but i always say and i'm big on vetting you'll learn like i, I talk about vetting everyone like i vet i vet like everyone it's just part of what i do um but vet your dermatologist because not all dermatologists are made the same and so as part of that vetting i always encourage people to you know call up the front desk and say does this provider treat genital skin conditions are they comfortable treating genital skin conditions? Do they treat anybody with lichen sclerosis? And here's why, this might differ, but in my city, in Toronto, like 80% of the dermatologists do Botox, fillers, and more Botox. They'll treat some acne and maybe take a mole off of you, which is, is fine, there's a place for that, but someone that basically exclusively does fillers for face, 
they're not comfortable treating genital conditions, and they also don't have that clinical experience in diagnosing. So that, you know, that's why I always say, yes, board-certified dermatologist is a good route to go. However, vet them. Um, gynecologists can be a good option, but again, a lot of, like, especially OBGYNs, the big focus is often in obstetrics. Babies, babies, babies is kind of the bread and butter, and they're not seeing a lot of vulvar cases. They're seeing a lot more pregnancy, maybe some period stuff, maybe a little bit of menopause, and that's kind of it. So again, with gynecologists, I say vet them too. Do you treat genital conditions? Do you have a lot of patients with, you know, vulvar dermatoses? If not, can you refer me? Urologists can be a good option too. Same thing, I vet them as well. And then the other thing is that if you have a complicated case and you're really struggling, there are vulvar specialists. Now, they exclusively see vulvar conditions. They don't do babies. There's no obstetrics in that building. Day in and day out, all they do is treat vulvar conditions. So lichenoid conditions like lichen planus, lichen simplex chronicus, lichen sclerosis, vulvodynia, clerodynia, you know, dermatitis, all of these things, that is all that they do. So they're often a really good resource for if you're having vulvar pain and you're not getting anywhere with your diagnosis, they're probably the number one in terms of getting in. That comes with a caveat though about accessibility because depending on where you live, that might not be an option for you. Okay. Um, they also tend to, at least in the States, again, I'm in Canada, so it's a little bit different. We have different challenges with our healthcare systems, right? So in the States, the accessibility challenge becomes a price point because most vulvar specialists don't take insurance. So you're looking at like a thousand and up to get an appointment for two hours. Um, granted, it'll be probably the best care you've ever received in your life, but it comes with a steep price tag. And then in Canada, the issue isn't so much um, financial, it's time. So I have a gynecologist on my case, and I have a vulvar specialist. Guess how long I waited for my vulvar specialist to get in? A week? Three years. Oh. Three whole years. So, yes. <laughs> That's why I say, you know, both countries have their unique healthcare system challenges. So... You know, in the States, it's accessibility from a financial and insurance standpoint. But then in Canada, it can be very long wait times because we don't have a lot of clinics that focus exclusively on vulvar conditions. So there might be one per big city. That's the other thing too, right? In Ontario, a lot of people have to come to Toronto to get into these big clinics. And then in Canada, we're talking about a year to three to get in. So... There are some accessibility issues. So what I always tell people is two things. I say, go find a dermatologist or a gynecologist or a urologist, vet them, get in with them first, and then at the same time, try and get into a vulvar clinic as well. So that at least you get somebody up front while you're waiting. So like I had that gynecologist on my case until I got in to see. So I wasn't three years without any care. I was just three years without getting like super specialized care. Jacqueline, how can people find you? People can find me primarily on Instagram. Um, I'm at the Las Labia Chronicles on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. But I don't really like TikTok. 
like, I just, I know you don't either. And every content creator I know is like, I'm on it. I try it. Not really my thing. So I'm on it and I will respond to messages, but my primary social media home that I'm very active on is Instagram. So at the Las Vegas Chronicles, you can also email me, Jacqueline, J-A-C-L-Y-N, at lostlabia.com. Um, and those are the primary ways that you can find me. You can also check out my website, lostlabia.com, um, for a ton of free resources. I also have a crisis, an international crisis page for people that are in crisis, uh, support lines all across the world. Um, I always like to share that with people, too, because this can cause a lot of people to, you know, be in crisis. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your work. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that you listened to the podcast and that we were able to connect. I really believe this is going to be something that's useful to a lot of people. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. And thank you for the work that you do to you know, advocate for people and to erase stigma and to really make deep and important shifts in, in sexual health. So I appreciate your work. Thank you. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. And if you have any feedback, let me know. Um, if this was something that was useful to you, we'll have all of Jacqueline's information listed in the show notes. And uh, yeah, if you know someone who might be struggling with lichen sclerosis or you may think that you have symptoms with it, like I'd like to know um, if this is something that just impacts you or if this resonates at all. So reach out, let me know, because I'm sure there are many other conditions out there that might parallel herpes or um, need some uplifting for people to be aware. Because again, so much of what something positive for positive people has become over the years is more than just a herpes education resource. We're talking about sexual communication. We're talking about healthcare advocacy. Um, and now, you know, for the first time, I think <laughs> I'm learning something about sexual health that isn't what we think of when we look at sexual health like this is health and then it's locked into the genital region it has nothing to do with transmission via sex we're talking about an autoimmune condition here um so i'm gonna continue to just go on the trajectory of where something positive for positive people is taking me um and bring in more of these voices as it fits of course but yeah i would like to know if this is something that helped you at all all right, until next time.